It's July, and we've now been following the nitty-gritty of the smaller-scale farming world for four whole years. Four laps of this world around the sun. We've chanced upon and dug up many stories, sharing the work of so many inspirational farmers and growers, as the podcast has spiraled from a discussion over dinner into an adventure which has led us to uncover new ideas, perspectives, and techniques along the way. At Farmerama, we're working with you all to create a positive ecological future rooted in the people on the land and the seas. We're connecting up a global web of smaller-scale farmers and food producers who are working for profitable and ecological solutions. This is not about one farming doctrine being better than the other, but about working together to find a system that works for all. So, we wanted to take this moment to say thank you for listening, for caring, for sharing and for helping to build a more ecological world for all. Thank you to those of you out there transforming our relationship to the natural world, from extractive to regenerative, and to those of you who are supporting the movement. We know none of this is easy, and we're here to continue to build awareness of the brilliant work happening in the smaller-scale farming community, and to supercharge our learning together. And so here we go. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 48 of Farmerama. We have some super stories from multiple continents again this month. We begin in the United States with a cover crop guru from North Dakota. We nip a few states east to hear from the queen of pastured pigs and then back to the UK to be immersed in some wilding. And we're in Chile again this time to learn about the native trees and how they can form part of an agroforestry system. It was brilliant to meet a few of you at Groundswell last month. Thank you to everyone who came up, said hi, and told us about your favourite episodes and who had inspired you along the way. We love hearing from you. One of the speakers at Groundswell was Jay Fuhrer a conservationist working for the Natural Resources Conservation Service in North Dakota. Jay emphasizes soil health as a foundation for cropping systems, grazing systems, cover crops, soil biology, pollinators, insects, wildlife, and quality of life. You may have come across him already, as he is key part of Gabe Brown's Dirt to Soil journey. We chatted to him about the power of cover crop mixes and how Understanding the carbon-to-nitrogen ratio of your cover crop can be very helpful when determining the right cover for you. We'd always struggled with the idea of carbon-to-nitrogen ratios, so we were really very happy when Jay explained it all so clearly. My name is uh, Jay Fear, and I'm a soil health specialist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, uh, USDA, and I work out of Bismarck, North Dakota. And I've, uh, I've done this for the past 39 years, and so it's allowed me to monitor soils over time. And uh, we've monitored these soils when we moved into the uh, cropland no-till systems, and we monitored uh, them also when we added cover crops, and also did some monitoring on soils on our grasslands, and, so, and more recently gardens. And so we start collectively uh, kind of painting a picture uh, telling us the information on um, carbon levels, etc. You know, uh, did the carbon level go up? Did it go down? 
And then typically biology uh, correlates directly with the carbon. So if the carbon level went up, it's pretty much guaranteed the biology level is going to go up. And so we've seen these two correlate many times. And then I think if we address the, um, the question on um, uh, CN ratios on cover crops, carbon-nitrogen ratios on cover crops, I think this is one of the key items to making a cover crop successful uh, for any individual farmer. And we've always known the carbon-nitrogen ratio of the different, different plant species for many years. We've known this. And, uh, you know, wheat um, is kind of sitting up at the high end, you know, at 80 to 1. Uh, soybean might be closer to 29 to 1, somewhere's in there. Uh, some of the brassicas are probably more around 15 to 1. They're, they're very low. And so for the first time when we looked at cover crop combinations, uh, we were able to put a mixture of plants together. Well, when we did this, we started to then realize that we could adjust the carbon-nitrogen ratio of the mixture. So if I was working with a, a client that had really bare soils, not able to keep a cover there, then we would lean into a little bit higher CN ratio in the mixture, and then my residue would then last a little longer. Uh, none of this really made much sense to me till I understood the CN ratio of the soil, which is tied into the soil organic matter level content. And so when you dissect 1% uh, soil organic matter, it's going to have 10,000 units of carbon and 1,000 units of organic nitrogen in every 1%. So if you factor that down, you get a 10 to 1 ratio. So most of the data is going to be 10 to 1, 11 to 1. And so then we start to understand what 1% soil organic matter is, and we start to understand that the CN ratios then are tied to this ending decomposition percent. And so when we have that high amount of carbon material, say for instance like wheat, uh, it's going to take it much longer uh, for the saprophytic fungi to decompose it uh, because they, uh, they will start with the high carbon material because the bacteria really can't. Uh, but once the saprophytic fungi have it reduced to a simpler chain, then the bacteria will come in and finish up. And so this takes a longer period of time than something that is very low carbon, in which case both are probably basically going to be in competition with each other, both the saprophytic fungi and the bacteria, and they will decompose this very quickly because they all have access to it. And so then we looked at these mixtures and we started to find that when we came in with something maybe around 30 to 1, for instance, or 35 to 1, there wasn't so much high carbon material that had tied up all of our nitrogen that wouldn't release then to the crop, but yet it was high enough to still give us a long period of cover on the ground also. So it was a balance. And when we used monoculture cover crops, we didn't have that option because the monoculture cover crop, the CN ratio, is what it is. Uh, that ship left the harbor. And when we came in with the combinations, it was so interesting because now we could adjust and we could, we could more closely meet the needs of the client. When we look at adding a cover crop into a field, we like to take a look at what we don't have. And so wheat, okay, cool season grass. I'm probably not going to put much for cool season grasses into that mixture that fall. 
I'm going to rely more on cool season broadleaves, or maybe I'm even going to look at some warm season broadleaves if it's early enough in the fall. But I'm probably going to kind of steer away from the grasses because agronomically I still prefer coming off of a grass, a uh, high carbon grass crop. I think I want to lean a little bit more into the broadleaves and, and from the, the agronomy of it and from the um, uh, breaking up disease cycles, I think the, this is really positive. The other thing that we want to look at that is uh, on the same line of giving us what we don't have with the four major crop types. So we have the cool season grasses and the warm season grasses, the cool season broadleaves and the warm season broadleaves. So anytime we can go ahead and bring in uh, what we don't have, that puts us in more of a line for increasing the amount of different root exudates. And so they each have their own specific exudate. And this gives us a little more of a balanced diet uh, for, for the microbial population. And when we first start moving into um, soil health principles, we're not always thinking of the quality of the diet. We're just thinking we got to feed them, and that's, that's a good start. But then after a while, you start to think about things like that, and that does make a difference. So if we come in with the diversity of plants, then we see a little stronger response and the biology does quite well on a balanced meal. The key concept that I'd uh, use today uh, after a couple of days here at Groundswell would be start somewheres. And so it isn't so important that you do the entire farm in one day. You can start with a field and you can observe it, but uh, change your methodology. Look at the principles. Uh, the message I would give at this time is that the principles are unique uh, to their op operation. They're universal in how they operate, but they're unique to their own, to your own farm in terms of how you apply them. And so you look at that uniqueness and you can go ahead and find your path based on the principle and then start somewheres. And, and I think you'll find that this is going to be a path that will have fulfillment in it. I think it has uh, challenges for sure, but yet uh, as you go down the path, it gets simpler. We're working together with Chelsea Green Publishing to produce the Women of the Land series, in which we share the voices of women who are fueled by their connection with the land to build businesses, garner movements and share their stories. They're standing up for what they know works and crafting a better future for us all. The first episode in this series featured Leah Penniman talking about her book, Farming While Black. The next feature was released earlier this week with pastured pig farmer, Alice Percy. You can hear much more from Alice in the special episode, but here's some of our conversation that you won't hear in that main feature, in which she talks about what it means to farm and eat pigs. I mean, this is a personal question, but have you ever become like too attached to a pig? No, um, I've had some, I've had a few brood sows that um, I was very fond of that I would say I felt a, a genuine attachment to um, uh -huh. and that I was a little sad to see go, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't devastating. You know, it's, I, you go into this knowing that you need to be 
logical and to a certain extent ruthless in your decision making. Um, you know, if you if you ever had an animal that you wanted to keep without an economic reason for doing so, in your mind and your bank account, you would need to be separating that animal from your farm system and announcing, okay, this is a pet. Like, I'm not going to write its feed off on my taxes. <laughs> you know, that it just yeah, it, yeah, that yeah. can't be part of your farming system. I mean, this again is so personal, but do you think that? Um, part of being a farmer is coming to terms with like the cycle of life and the process of growing and then dying? Absolutely. Um, I am strongly of the opinion that anybody who eats meat should at least once in their life take a, a, a live animal and turn it into dinner. And if you uh -huh. cannot confront that reality, then you should absolutely be a vegetarian um, because uh -huh. that that's just simply a reality of what meat requires. And I think that if you can approach it in a way that respects the animal and avoids pain, then it is simply part of nature. Um, and I think it's been great for my kids to, um, you know, they, they've witnessed all of it. They've seen the births, they've seen the deaths. They actually enjoy being a part of a on-farm slaughter and butcher and, uh, and not in a, you know, sadistic way. It's just like, it's exciting. They know they're going to get good food. They're interested in the anatomy of the animals. Um, and I've uh -huh. explained to them, like, this is how we do it so that the animal doesn't know what's coming, that the animal doesn't suffer. Um, and so they're aware that that's important. And on that point, maybe you could talk a little bit about what it means to have uh, a more humane um, death or slaughter and butchery. And, you know, a lot of, certainly in the UK, there's a lot of legality around being able to slaughter your own animals, certainly if you want to sell them. Um, and what do you think needs to change there? Yeah, there's a lot of legal uh, restrictions around slaughter for sale here, too. And we, we were only ever slaughtering and butchering on farm for our own food. Um, yeah. And so the rest of our animals uh, went to a commercial slaughterhouse. Um, but one thing that's really nice about this area is that we don't have any of those enormous slaughterhouses. They're all... Um, they're all quite small. They're overseen by a single person. They have a low flow of work. Um, and so they, they can afford to, and, and they're not cheap to, to use. The, the processing costs are very high as a result. And that's part of the reason that my pork was exponentially higher than the pork on the supermarket shelf. Um, but um, I, th I think that a lot of the problems that you see in um, the, the welfare problems that you see in mainstream slaughtering plants have to do with the enormous size. Um, you know, I don't know if you heard the stories of the um, slaughterhouse workers were getting um, neurological symptoms because they were on a conveyor line where there were um, the hog heads were going through and they were um, extracting the brains from the skulls i think for the chinese market i can't remember what they were being used for um, but the the rate of work was so high that the hog brains were getting aerosolized and the workers were breathing in basically pig brain fumes and it was causing oh my gosh. Like, it, it was literally causing neurological illness 
Um, and when you're trying to rush animals through a system that has to move that big, that fast, there's no room to slow down, allow an animal to move at its own pace calmly. They're like, they're using electric prods to keep these animals moving through the aisles. Um, they don't have time to wait for an animal to calm down before they approach it with a bolt gun. At, at the slaughterhouse that we used, there were um, a select number of staff people. They'd all been there for a long time. They were trained in how to an handle animals. I watched them handle animals and they did it with patience and with an understanding of animal behavior and how the animals would move in response to subtle cues rather than beating them through the aisle with electric rods um, because they had to get, you know, tens of thousands of animals through that day. So then a, a big part of humane um, pig rearing is also, um, you know, ensuring, minimizing stress uh, in transport and, and slaughter. Yeah, and a lot of that just has to, it, it's literally slow food. You have to slow down and take things at the animal's pace. Um, and if you don't have the, the time or the inclination to do that, you're inevit inevitably going to end up with stressed animals. No, so clear. And I mean, that visual was um, very dark <laughs> of the pig brains. <laughs> so we got the picture. If you want to hear more, be sure to tune in to the full episode released earlier this week. You'll find it on your podcast feed. It's called Alice Percy, Happy Pigs Taste Better. And she talks to Abby about rearing pigs on pasture, some of the challenges she faced, her favourite breeds, how they helped her soil, and more. And we definitely recommend listening to the Leah Penniman episode as well. Isabella Tree and her husband, Charlie Burrell, have been farming at Nepa Estate in West Sussex for over 30 years. In 2001, they realized all the work they were doing trying to make their streamlined, conventional farming operation turn a reliable profit just wasn't going to pay off in the long run. And so, inspired by a large oak tree on the farm and some key research, they sold up all their machinery and stopped actively interfering with the land, aside from some minimally managed roaming animals. Everyone who visits Nepa State comes back with an enchanted look on their face at the amazing wildlife they've seen, and they talk of just how alive it all is. But, as we've covered on the show before, Often the idea of rewilding can be anti-farming. So it's definitely not without its challenges. We caught up with Isabella at Groundswell to get a farmer's perspective on it all. We'll be hearing about some of the nitty-gritty challenges next month. But first, a fun taster, as we enchant you with some of the unexpected ways that beauty has sprung into being at NEP. My name's Isabella Tree and I am co-owner of NEP Estate with my husband, Charlie Burrell. And I recently wrote a book, Wilding, about our story of going from intensive farming to rewilding. We now have pretty much 3,500 acres of rewilded land. Uh, so that is land that was, 20 years or so ago, intensive arable and dairy. Uh, so in terms of biodiversity and uh, nature excitement, virtually a desert, uh, to now being one of the most significant places in Britain for nature because we have so many rare and endangered species as well as just the biomass of all the more common species back. So really it's an area that is now 
driven by free-roaming animals. We have Old English Longhorn being a proxy of the aurochs, our ancient uh, ox. We have Exmoor Ponies being a proxy of the tarpan, the original horse. We have Tamworth Pigs being wild boar. And then we have fallow deer, red deer and roe deer. And all those animals, those herbivores, are moving through the landscape, very low numbers, but the way they disturb the land, the way they have different eating preferences, their different behaviours, all create niches for other wildlife. So it's like creating a kind of shifting, dynamic habitat that is ever-moving, and that is just rocket fuel for biodiversity. I think one of the most astonishing moments and one that was the most challenging for us really in the early days of the rewilding project it really challenged the old mindset the farmer's mindset in us, in us that hadn't yet disappeared was when we suddenly saw hundreds of acres being covered by creeping thistle you know with our old farming mindset we would have got out with the glyphosate and the toppers and got rid of it without even thinking about it but there we were, having kind of taken this pledge that we were doing a process-led project. We were going to intervene as little as possible. The only intervention really is the animals. They manage the place for us. And we manage the numbers of the animals. But that's pretty much it. Otherwise, we have to sit on our hands. That's the key to letting rewilding happen successfully. But the creeping thistle was a real challenge. And we were having your sincerely disgusted letters from the public. People were writing to their MPs. We were having poems written in the press. And we were just getting nervous about it because year on year, about the second or third year, the creeping thistle was just continuing to kind of colonise the whole of the Repton Park and part of the northern part of the estate. But we really, really did keep our nerve then we woke up one summer morning, it was a Sunday morning, and there were painted lady butterflies just passing by our bedroom window like tracer. And we couldn't work out what was going on. So we rushed downstairs to see where they were going, and they were landing straight on that creeping thistle, because the thistle is their main food plant for their caterpillars. It's where they lay their eggs. And we stood in the middle of this creeping thistle and all around us you could hear the sort of susurration, the sort of shimmering of tens of thousands of butterflies. I mean, one butterfly is silent, but you're in tens of thousands of them, you can hear it. It's like a kind of a distant waterfall or something. Amazing, amazing experience. And after the butterflies had left and laid their eggs, a few weeks later, those creeping thistle heads were in shreds. It was like a kind of abandoned army. These skeletons left. These, you know, the plants were in complete decline. But underneath them were these anthills that had grown up because they'd been protected from the grazing animals by these thorns, by the creeping thistle. So that little habitat had become a haven for anthills, it had become a haven for pregnant common lizards, which were finding this place safe to, to have their young and all the insects in there for them. It had become a little insect paradise during the, those few years that the creeping thistle had been there. And then the following year, it had completely disappeared. 
So the lesson really for us was to absolutely trust our instincts and sit on our hands. Nature doesn't like a monocrop. Um, it will something will come in sooner or later. Some pathogen, um, some virus, some pest will destroy it. And so now, when we see ragwort, we see um, St John's wort, we've got flea bane coming everywhere. We just know it's fine. Nature will sort it out. We're going to be publishing a full version of this interview, which will be on the feed sometime in the next month, in which she tells us her vision for the future of farming and why she's proud to be a farmer. Finally this month, we talked to Ido of Mass Nguyen, who's developing an agroforestry system in Chile that helps to stop deforestation and enable many farmers to have native trees as part of their farming operation. My name is Eduardo, and um, we are working on an agroforestry system with native Chilean species. Um, and the idea is that most of the native Chilean species have been taken away, deforested, because they don't see any use to them. And so we want to introduce a system that is reforesting and creating work for farmers at the same time. The brand is called Mas Nguyen, which in the Mapuche language means more life force. Yeah, We're looking for components from the Chilean forest to use in cosmetics and in superfood. Uh, we have a small farm. It's about three hectares that we work on. Um, it's in the Horizontes del Mar Valley, central Chile. It's uh, next to the coast, next to the sea. So we have a relict uh, ancient forest, uh, Valdivian winter rainforest to be more precise. There's a quite some Chilean trees and uh, a lot of them are you can use them for botanics they have volatile components so one of them is called peumo um, it smells really nice uh, and it's a very special tree they're doing research on it now and it's one of the trees that creates ozone so it's uh, it's yeah it's it, it has an amazing smell and it retains water so it's uh, that's one of them uh, the other one is maki it's a uh, it's a bush it has a berry, um, which has a very high amount of antioxidants, uh, almost seven times more than uh, the acai berry, so it's very strong. Um, and in the seed, you have uh, lots of fatty acids, omega-3, 6, and 9, so very interesting. In, especially in central Chile, there's a lot of deforestation. It's between 83 and 86% of the native forest have been, has been deforested for the past 150 years. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a mess. So there's lots of desertification happening in central Chile. And I think one of the best ways to, to fight that is to bring back the native forest. Uh, the big problem is is that most of the farmers they don't see any value to this forest. So if you create an agroforestry system that is also a farmer system, then you can justify it to the local farmers that they start changing their crops to native species. So it's a combined system. It's not only forest. Uh, so is there a silver pasture in between? Uh, so you could see rows of, uh, of agroforestry system with uh, flowers, bushes, trees, and then in between long lines of maybe quinoa, rye, uh, and different animals going in between. So basically we're emulating uh, a savanna system.
So the species that we're looking at, the native species, they all have uh, medicinal properties and they all have power food properties, so very high in nutrients, very high in fatty acids, essential oils, and most of the components from these specific species we can use in our own products. So in that way, Mos Nguyen becomes a regenerative brand and it, it's taking its components from a regenerative system. And one of the things that you really see here in Chile, well, there's lots of monoculture and there's lots of, you know, standard agriculture uh, using lots of foreign species. People tend to copy what's working and that's normal. I think that happens in, in a lot of places, but I think in Chile, I think lots of farmers are not copying maybe in the best uh, way or the most positive way. And so you see lots of deforestation to create vineyards, to create avocado plantations. And I think one of the biggest problems that we have here is the loss of our, uh, of our water supplies because of that. And so that doesn't really help the, the decertification that's happening because of the deforestation that already happened. So uh, an avocado tree, for one kilo of avocados, you need about 200 liters of water because it has to change water into fatty acids. And so that's you need a lot of energy for that. And so just imagine taking away 100 hectares of you know, sclerophyll forest that's, that's, that's doing water retention and changing it to avocado plantation that is just sucking up your water supply. So yeah, that's a big issue. The important thing I want to say is that we should really uh, value the the natural systems that are already there. So we should really value the native species because we really need them. If 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 we want to have a chance against the changing of the climate, the loss of of water, and the loss of uh, biodiversity, then we should really start to protect them. And not only protect them, we should regenerate them, bring them back, restore them. The Mapuche people here in Chile, they have been, you know, they've been in a, in a constant battle actually protecting their grounds. And they're not just protecting their grounds, they're protecting the forest, the rivers, the mountains. So they are very key in the whole thing of uh, regeneration and protection of, uh, of the Chilean biodiversity. Yeah, big example really don't discard the native species of where where your farm is situated most of the native species and that's not only in chile i think that's around the world um you know they're they're really good at water harvesting water retention uh soil remediation uh they are the original pioneers so we should uh, respect them i think we should conserve pristine places so I don't think we should go too deep into the jungle or too deep into the forest collecting these species just because we want to collect. I think we should look at species that, uh, you know, can grow really quickly, uh, that can have different um, effects uh, when it comes to pharmaceuticals, when it comes to cosmetics or to food. So uh, a, a berry like maki you know, is is easily as commercial as an arandano or a blueberry. Uh, so I think we should sort of find a balance in that. And um, yeah, I think we should be careful, though. 
I don't think we should use all, all the species. And I think also, especially here in Chile, the Mapuches, they have uh, extended knowledge of the medicinal plants. And there are a lot of them that they don't share because they're too sacred. So and I think we should respect that. Absolutely. Maki is a good example. Uh, it's a berry. Uh, so that berry can easily be adapted to a farming situation. And it can also be uh, uh, adapted to a forestry situation. So it's sort of in between. Uh, but there are different species here in Chile that are not so easy to uh, to propagate. And so you would have to go in the forest and really, you know, collect them over there. And I think that's that's where I'm, where we are drawing the line. Thanks for listening to Farmer Mama this month and every month. We're excited to be heading into our fifth year of Farmer Mama with your support. If you want to help us, then please take a second to review us or to share the show with any friends or family you think might be interested. Farmerama is made by Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, and myself, Abby Rose. This month, Susie McCarthy and Louis Hudson support it by producing some of the features. Community support for the show comes from Hannah Söderland, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!